Welcome to the show, everybody. Much to cover today. Uh, we'll begin with a prominent socialist on YouTube uh, and social media, a guy who, who, who regularly rails against the rich, really doesn't like rich people. Well, um, he says they have no credibility to speak on, on, on anything and we shouldn't listen to them. Well, you'll never guess where this is going. Big, big twist ending. Turns out the guy himself is extremely wealthy. His family owns multiple mansions, on and on and on. Uh, so we'll talk about that. There seems to be a theme here. This seems to be a, a trend where you've got these prominent socialists who end up being rich. Why is that? We'll talk about it. Also, five headlines, including uh, an update on the ongoing civil war over toilet paper that is happening in the aisles of our supermarkets, uh, spurred on by the coronavirus. Why is it that everybody is rushing to the store to get toilet paper because of the coronavirus? Uh, we'll, we'll try to figure that out as well. Uh, and a coronavirus-related daily cancellation that we'll get to. Finally, some of your emails, uh, Pat writes in to tell me why I'm wrong about abortion. So he believes he's got a great argument. They'll debunk everything I say about the subject, and we'll get to that. We'll read it. We'll see if, uh, if he succeeds or not. By the way, I'd be remiss if I didn't take a moment and, and wish you a belated uh, happy International Women's Day. International Women's Day was, was yesterday. I, I hope you, you celebrated it. Uh, I, you know, as you know, I believe in celebrating women. I'm uh, something of a, of a reputed uh, feminist. And uh, it's, just, you know, it's just something I believe in. It's as simple as that. Celebrating women, celebrating progress. It, it, it's, it's something that's important to me. And so I went up to my wife um, in honor of the holiday. And uh, I said, listen, Toots. It's International Women's Day, and I want you to really enjoy it. So I'm going to let you make me whatever you want for dinner. It's up to you. Go crazy with it. And, and then I said, you can even make a little for yourself, too. You can even have, you can even have half, half a portion if you want. Um, and the look in her, in her eyes was, well, it just made it all worth it, I have to say. And that's what supporting women is all about, folks. So, uh, again, I hope you had a great day there. Before we get to the rich socialist, um, not Bernie Sanders, but the other rich socialist. No, not, not, not Michael Moore, the other, the other, other rich socialist. Uh, before we get to that, speaking of me being a sexist bigot, I'll be speaking at the University of Maryland tonight, wanted to mention. I'll be giving my talk on the left's war on reality, focusing especially on their assaults on life, marriage, and gender. Well, maybe, I don't know, we've got Pat's email on, on abortion, so maybe he'll convince me otherwise. I'll have to take the life part out of it. We'll see. But that's probably what the talk is going to be, out, be about. And it turns out that some of the students don't want me there, which is really surprising because I'm such a lovable guy. I don't know why anybody wouldn't like me. And there's this poster going around that was, was put up on campus. It says, um, fascist bigots out of Maryland stand with LGBT plus uh, UM... What does that say? I can't even read that. Uh, University of Maryland students against bigotry and hatred on their campus. First of all, you need, for, for a, a poster, you need much better font than this. It's hard to read, at least for me. I'm also half blind. Matt Walsh of Daily Wire speaking at Stamp Student Union. Uh, and then it offers a quote from me. It says, if there is trans acceptance in society, Western civilization is over. I don't think that's a direct quote. That's, I don't think I said that exactly. Help us show opposition to Walsh's dangerous rhetoric. Meet at the front entrance at 6. Okay, so there you go. I, all I wanted to say about this is um, I find it a little bit hurtful because, you know, calling me a fascist bigot, I think is out of bounds. I have made it very clear I am a theocratic 
fascist bigot. So that's the particular flavor of, of, uh, of oppression and tyranny that I personally support. And I would appreciate it if you would respect my self-identification. That's all I'm going to say about that. Anyway, I'll be there at, at 7 tonight, so hopefully I'll see you there. One other note at the top here before we get into, um, before we get into everything else. And this is from LegalZoom. Look, uh, you don't need to go to law school in order to get good legal advice. I know that when it, when it comes to, it, it kind of feels like if, you, if you've, you've got an issue, you need legal advice, you need, you need to have gone to law school yourself in order to sort through everything, but that's not the case. Over the past 19 years, LegalZoom has helped more than 2 million Americans start their businesses by incorporating, forming an LLC, and more. Uh, they're going to help you navigate through that very seemingly daunting process and they're going to give you all the information that you need, and they're going to put it right at your fingertips, make it very easy for you. But even after your business is set up, LegalZoom can still help you uh, with a lot more because, of course, anyone who's a business owner, you know that there's ongoing need for, for legal advice, especially with all the red tape and everything you deal with as a business owner. Uh, things like lease agreements, changing tax laws, reviewing contracts, all that plays a part in running your business, and LegalZoom is going to help you with that. Uh, these are precisely the kinds of costly hurdles that could take time away from you actually running your business. Don't let that happen. LegalZoom's network of independent attorneys and tax professionals can provide advice to address these things and much more than that. And uh, you'll never get changed by, charged by the hour, that is, uh, since LegalZoom is not a law firm. So it's not going to cost you the same way. Go to LegalZoom.com today. Enter promo code Walsh in the box at checkout for special savings. That's LegalZoom.com code Walsh. LegalZoom, where life meets legal. Okay, Carlos Mazza. Maybe you've heard of him. Maybe not. Uh, he is, uh, well, he's this guy. The long, dark night of the end of history has to be grasped as an enormous opportunity. The very oppressive pervasiveness of capitalist realism means that even glimmers of alternative political and economic realities can have a disproportionately great effect. The tiniest event can tear a hole in the gray curtain of reaction, which has marked the horizon of possibility. From a situation in which nothing can happen, suddenly, anything is possible. Yes, uh, very smart. Very smart guy. You can tell he's smart because of the big words. That's how you know. That's how you know the smart people. Actually, he was was quoting a, a book there, which makes him even smarter. And Mazza, you may remember him from when he was uh, he was trying to deplatform Stephen Crowder a while back. So he's that same guy. He's big into deplatforming people. It's sort of his thing, part of his motto. In fact, his motto is "Be gay, do socialism, deplatform bigots." Like I said, the guy's a genius. Do socialism. Uh, you know, you can't you can't you can't put it any better way than that. He's also, as it turns out, uh, a filthy hypocrite. There's a fascinating piece in the New York Post from John Levine. Levine exposes Mazza's hypocrisy, and the price that he paid for it, Levine did, is that he got suspended from Twitter. He's, just, he's reporting on this. Twitter suspended him twice. Suspended him, let him back, suspended him again, and then said that he could come back if he deletes some of his reporting about Carlos Mazza, which, which he had to do so that he could come back. Um, and uh, and this, is, this is what happens. The the leftist hypocrites protect their own. They circle the wagons. Now, as Levine reports, Mazza is not only a socialist, but he has taken, he's taken to publicly criticizing people for being wealthy. Here he is attacking James Carville for, uh, for being rich. Says, just found out James Carville, 
who spends his time lecturing Democrats for being too far left, lives in an absolutely obscene four-story mansion. And dear God, can we stop taking political advice from the ultra-wealthy? And he continues, you really have to respect this guy's grift. Constantly dressing in normal clothes on TV to feign relatability while living like this. Masterful con artist. In another quote, uh, another post quoted by Levine, he apparently wrote, we should treat gay people the same way we treat straight people, eating them when they get too rich. So he's, you know, he's in, he wants to eat the rich. He's into that. Meanwhile, Maz also fundraises from his followers, hits them up for cash, um, calls them his uh, comrades, the ones who, who, who donate to him, uh, donate to, to him through, through Patreon. All of this despite being himself, apparently, enormously wealthy. Reading now from the Post article, it says, through his clan, the millennial firebrand is connected to multiple Florida mega mansions. A $7.1 million pad on the Upper West Side purchased, uh, purchased under an LLC and a yacht by luxury boat maker Donzi. Personally, they're my favorite yacht maker. I've, I've got a couple and that's, if you're going for a yacht, definitely go for the Donzi. Just my opinion. Uh, he says, Mazza's mother, Vivian Mazza, was one of his was one of the first employees at Ultimate Software, a Florida-based behemoth, which now employs more than 5,000 people. Starting in 1990 as an office manager, she ultimately rose to become the group's chief people officer in 2004. In addition to her day job, Vivian Mazza has uh, developed a very close personal relationship with the company founder, Scott Scher, so close that an independent assessment of the company in 2016 cited the relationship as a corporate governance concern. The report said they believe the pair to be more than just coworkers and have a familial relationship. The two later became engaged, and the couple has lived together for years with Cher being a de facto stepfather to Carlos. Public records show Vivian, Scott, Carlos, and sister Isabel all registered to vote at a five-bedroom, eight-bathroom waterfront palace in Boca Raton, Florida. First of all, what do you need eight bathrooms for? Talk about wasting water. I mean, why would you need more bathrooms than you have? They, they got twice as many bathrooms as people. Each person gets two bathrooms. Uh, the property sold in 2018 for $10.8 million, according to realty website Zillow. Share also unloaded a four-bed, four-bath home in 2015, uh, in, 2015 um, in Weston, Florida for $1.8 million. Eh, just $1.8 million. Poultry little thing. Vivian currently resides full-time in a $4.4 million two-bed, three-bath luxury condo in Fort Lauderdale, which she lists as her primary residence, according to a 2020 report filed by LCH23 LLC, which she controls. The same LLC purchased a $7.1 million condo on the Upper West Side of Manhattan in uh, November 2017. Let's take a look at the mansion. This is the one I believe in Boca Raton. Uh, so there it is right there. Pretty, pretty, pretty nice. Uh, nicer than Bernie's place. So I bet there's a little bit of, little bit of socialist jealousy going on there. The socialists are all about jealousy. That's their whole thing. Um, and it continues. It's not clear how much Vivian and Cher uh, uh, actively support Maz's lifestyle, but Evans suggests the family has been happy to pitch in to help spread his socialist message. Both Cher and uh, Vivian Maza are listed as a as comrades at the end of Carlos's most recent YouTube video. And the younger Mazza himself admitted in an interview with Mel Magazine that his family was there to financially back him if he needed it. Viv and Scott also have pitched in on the rent for Carlos's chic East Village pad just across from Tompkins Square Park. Um, rents for about 3000 a month, according to the Post. Okay, so there you have it. 
Now, if I were to attempt some kind of long-distance psychotherapy here, I would say that maybe Carlos has some mommy and daddy issues, and so his eat-the-rich stuff is really about his resentment for his parents. Uh, in fact, I, I think there's a lot of that. In in there, we, we've talked about what what's the reason why um, socialism has become so popular with the younger generation, and there are many reasons for it. We've got into. I think one issue that does play a part is this mommy and daddy issues. I, why is it that so many of these young socialists are you know they're college educated, a lot of them went to nice colleges, they 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 don't come from dirt poverty, a lot of them, they come from upper class society. And uh, they, they, they were raised by well-off baby boomers. Probably a lot of them, you know, their parents, two parents or one probably divorced, both working full-time. They were latchkey kids, came home to empty houses. Maybe they had a nanny that was there. Um, they had all the electronics that they, that they could ever want, and they were playing video games and stuff. But, they, you know, they, they felt emotionally neglected. See, I told you, I'm doing the psychotherapy. I think this is part of it. They felt emotionally neglected by their rich parents, growing up, and now they're taking that out on those parents by saying, let's eat the rich, rich people are evil. What they really mean is, my parents are evil. I don't like my parents. At the same time, though, they've got no problem accepting help from their parents. In fact, they demand it. So they're going to they're take the money. Yes, you could, you could pay my, my, my rent, and you could pay for my, my cell phone and, and, and everything else, but I still hate rich people. So I, th- I think there's part of it. But generally, we find this with, uh, of course, with many of the prominent, high-profile socialists out there. We find that socialism is a grift, speaking of grifts. And in many ways, it's very similar to the snake oil televangelists who get rich preaching their own self-serving version of the gospel. Carlos Mazza, Bernie Sanders, um, Michael Moore, these guys are, they're like the, the Jim Bakers of socialist politics. Jim Baker, by the way, is is a televangelist. I've talked about him before. He's he was the one he was arrested for for fraud, went to prison for it, and then got out and went went got got right back into it, got right back into being a, a wolf in um, sheep's clothing. Put put the sheep's clothing right back on. Dove right in. Has a big following again. Is on TV. Right now he's he's uh, he's hawking a a uh, a a liquid that he says can cure the coronavirus. And you can buy it for the low, low price of $300. So that's what these people are. Baby. They're like Jim Baker, except of socialism. They've got their own calibrated, self-serving message of, of salvation that they sell, literally sell, to the dazed and confused and credulous masses. And uh, the only difference, I guess, is while the snake oil televangelists are preying often upon the elderly, uh, the snake oil socialists are preying upon the young and dumb. And this provides, for once, a great transition to an ad. I want to celebrate this moment. My first time that I get a seamless transition. I've already ruined it by talking about it. So there goes the seamlessness of it. Uh, time is running out to get 25% off all Daily Wire membership plans using coupon code NEVERSOCIALIST. This is the last week we're giving you to this offer. And, uh, I, you know, I'm getting emotional just thinking of all the people who aren't going to get their discount because they missed out on the deal. I, why would you do that to yourself? Why would you, in these 
terrible trying times add an extra burden onto you and your family by not taking advantage of this deal. Daily Wire members get an ad-free website experience, access to all of our live broadcasts and show library, including the Matt Wall Show, the full three hours of the Ben Shapiro Show, access to the mailbag. You get all of this, okay? Uh, you don't take us up on the deal. I don't know what to say. You hate yourself. You hate us. You hate America. How dare you? Along with all of this, of course, you get the magnificent, the irreplaceable, the singular leftist tears tumbler. And if you haven't already downloaded the Daily Wire app, so you can get all of our great content on the go. Again, that's 25% off the Daily Wire memberships for all plans using coupon code NEVERSOCIALIST. So head on over to dailywire.com slash subscribe. The deal is ending this week, so join now. That's dailywire.com slash subscribe. All right, let's go to headlines. Number one, Dwayne Wade posted on Instagram last night, reintroducing his, his, uh, his son as his daughter. His son, at just 12 years old recently, transitioned, quote unquote, into a girl. And by tra- transition, we mean he remains a boy, totally a boy in every sense, but he's pretending to be a girl because he's confused, uh, the child is. And Dwayne and his Hollywood actress wife are more than happy to foment and encourage that confusion because it helps them feel trendy and progressive and, uh, and up with the times, and, and that's what this is about. So here's the post. It says, uh, everyone, everyone allow her to reintroduce herself. Her name is Zaya Wade. Last night was Zaya's first red carpet, and we couldn't have been prouder of how she handled the questions that were asked of her. She has remer- emerged as one of the young voices and faces for the LGBTQ plus community. Okay, again, this is a boy in every sense. A boy, very straightforward, only the boy is now wearing women's pants. It's a boy in women's pants. That's what this is. Nothing confusing here. There's no, there's no scientific marvel. People say it's a complex issue. You know, no, it's not complex. There's nothing complex about this. That is a boy wearing women's pants and a green jacket. That's what that is. And um, it's, it's, in no way do the pants or jacket make him a girl. In no way. In no way does anything make him a girl, or could anything. He's going to be a boy forever. Okay, that is a scientific fact. Now, and and his own confusion, his own feelings, those don't make him a girl either. And if you think that confusion and feelings is what makes somebody a girl, well, then I would suggest that, you know, you are a sexist. Uh, And and, and, uh, that's something you need to think about. In International Women's Week. Now, the other question is, how is he a face and voice for the LGBTQ community? He's 12 years old. What makes him a face and voice for anyone? And, And why are you trying to put your child forward at the age of 12 as the face and voice for a whole community of people? They were, this was a red carpet for something called the Truth Awards, by the way. And that's the the event they were attending. The Truth Awards are, are an award show for um, LGBT people in the arts. So the kid just, quote, came out as trans a few weeks ago. Already, they're bringing him to award shows, and they've got him on a red carpet. And, and you're going to tell me this isn't about the parents wanting to feel trendy? I mean, e- even if you think that a 12-year-old can become a girl... Okay, even if you know absolutely nothing about science, even if you know less about science than my six-year-olds do, so you think that a, a boy can become a girl, you should still agree that when, when, a, when a 12-year-old is, is going through this 
process. You don't bring them out to a red carpet and traipse them in front of cameras and start saying they're a, he's emerged. She's quote unquote. She's emerged as a uh, what was the quote? She's uh, she has emerged as one of the young faces and voices. What do you mean emerged? It, this is a few weeks ago. Already he's a face and voice for the LGBT. How so? He's only that because you're forcing him to be that. Because you're putting him in front of cameras. What a, what a, uh, what, what a shock. When you, when you stick your kids in front of cameras, all of a sudden they become a face and voice. Number two, it turns out that someone was infected with the coronavirus at CPAC. Lovely. Ted Cruz, Ted Cruz and, uh, and Representative Paul Gosar um, are going into voluntary self-quarantine, they say, because they apparently interacted with this individual. A reasonable precaution, as um, the, uh, the, the virus is thought to have as much of a, as a 14-day as a incubation period. So CPAC was over a week ago. So they're going in for the remainder of the 14 days. They say they have no symptoms, just precautions, which is great. Um, now, if the virus is, has a 14-day incubation period and it's contagious for that whole time, then that obviously is not great news. And it would seem like maybe your chances of, of getting the virus may become, might become greater than your chances of not getting it if that's the case. Fortunately, according to the CDC, I was reading about this and what they're saying is, it looks like right now, a lot of this is tentative because we still don't know a lot about the virus. But what they're saying is um, they think it's possible for someone that, for number one, for the virus to incubate for 14 days. And it's possible for someone to transmit the virus when they're asymptomatic. But they're also saying that it's much more likely that you'll contract it if you do from someone who is showing symptoms and from direct personal contact with them. Um, as long as that remains the the by far the primary way that the virus is, is uh, spread, that I would think that containment is a real possibility. But when you start talking about 14 days incubation, contagious the whole time, that's where um, it gets a little bit, a little bit more unwieldy. Number three, uh, and it may be early on, but we've already reached the fist fights over toilet paper stage of the epidemic. Here's what that looks like. Yes, toilet paper has become a hot commodity. In fact, my wife went to the grocery store yesterday, not not panic buying, but we we actually just needed groceries just for normal thing to go to the grocery store, which is what we do every week. But she went, she said it was, she she attested, it was like the apocalypse. It was entire shelves cleaned out, very difficult to find basic items, especially things for our kids, which is concerning. So we so but here's here's what happens now. So we go to the store and we need stuff for our kid. We need toilet paper also, like everybody does. Uh, in a civilized society, we also need wipes and diapers and, and, and things for our kids. But those things are being scooped up. And so now we have to stock up on them too. And we've got to go and start. It's not, I wouldn't call it panic buying. We're not panicking, but we've got to do that too, because we want to make sure we have that available for our kids if we need it. Um, and this is what 
this is this is how panic works. This is how mass hysteria works. It is self-generating. People are asking, why is everybody running out to the store for toilet paper? Well, everyone's running out to the store for toilet paper because everybody else is running out to the store for toilet paper. And you don't want to be the one left without a toilet paper. And so that's what happens. There's not any real reason why the coronavirus should, should cause this. Um, there's no reason why the coronavirus would lead to people running out of toilet paper. But it just starts. People go out, they panic, they scoop it up. And then other people say, well, I, I need some. So then, and then it's a self-generating. It's mass hysteria. It's panic. And we're watching it play out right in front of our eyes. This is what it looks like. Number four, Kamala Harris endorsed Joe Biden. Here she is. Here she is in, in what seems to be a bunker recording an endorsement video with, it appears, a toaster. So I just wanted you guys to know, because you've been supporting me for so long. And um, I just wanted you guys to know, I have decided that I am with great enthusiasm going to endorse Joe Biden for president of the United States. I believe in Joe. I really believe in him and I have known him for a long time. One of the things that we need right now is we need a leader who really does care about the people and who can therefore unify the people. And I believe Joe can do that. Um, I am supporting Joe because I believe that he is a man who has lived his life with great dignity. Um, he is a, a, a public servant who has always worked for the best of who we are as a nation. And we need that right now. There is so much at stake in this election, guys. So join me in supporting Joe and let's get this done. That's got to be the most begrudging endorsement video I've ever seen. And it's even worse because she had to stipulate verbally that she has enthusiasm. I am, with great enthusiasm, endorsing the guy I said was racist. Yeah, a lot of enthusiasm there. Remember, she did, in the debates, not long ago, try to tie Joe Biden to segregationists, and she got very tearful about it. That was her one big moment, where she was tearfully accusing Joe Biden of befriending segregationists. And now she's saying, he's the guy for the job. His, his dignity, his great dignity, the great dignity of this man that I said uh, a, a few months ago was befriending segregationists. The great dignity of this man. Finally, number five, an article on studyfinds.org tells us, here's just the headline. It says, seniors who walk for 30 minutes daily cut risk of death from any cause. Your risk of death could be, I read these headlines and, and I immediately think maybe I'm a, maybe I'm a, a pessimistic a little bit, but I think, I, you know, I don't think you can cut your risk of death from any cause. I think all of our, our risk of death from some cause or another, is 100%. We are 100% all going to die. Absolutely. Again, maybe pessimistic. I could be wrong about that, but I think that's... So cutting your risk of death, I think we need to find another way of phrasing that in the headline. Because you see these headlines all the time. This or that thing supposedly will make you less likely to die. In fact, I read that in the headline. I think it was phrased exactly like that, where you said, like, less likely to die if you do this or that. I don't know. I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical, but uh, maybe I'll go for a walk. It's worth worth a shot. Let's go to your daily cancellation. Today we're canceling uh, the folks in media who are claiming that calling the coronavirus the Wuhan virus is racist. So just a couple of, exa of examples. Here's David Gura of NBC making this claim. He says, FYI, calling COVID-19 the Wuhan virus is racist. And then Chris Hayes jumps into the action. Uh, he says, just astoundingly gross to call it the Wuhan virus. 
And they're reacting specifically to Congressman Gosar, who announced, as I said, he's going into self-quarantine. He called it the Wuhan virus in the process of announcing that. And that's where leftists in the media jumped in and said, how dare you call it the Wuhan virus? It's worth noting the media itself was calling it the Wuhan virus when, when this all first started. CNN used this phrase consistently. Look at these headlines. They used this phrase consistently for weeks. Uh, now, all of a sudden, the term has gone out of fashion, at least according to our betters in the media. But I wonder, if Wuhan virus is racist, then what about uh, Spanish flu, Stockholm syndrome, West Nile virus, Zika virus, uh, Lyme disease, German measles? Are all those racist too? And, and anyway, there may be a very good reason to call this the Wuhan virus, aside from the fact that that's where it originated, which is reason enough, and that's how we've named these sorts of things in the past. But take a look at this tweet uh, from China Daily two years ago, May of 2018. Okay, I don't, I don't. This is not conspiracy. This is what this was. This is a, a tweet. This is what it says. Uh, and there are some some pictures of of people in surgical masks and lab coats. And it says, "Take a look at the largest virus bank in Asia, Wuhan Institute of, Viro- of Virolo- Virology, Viro- Virology." Virology? Virology? Anyway, Wuhan Institute of Virology in central, in central China's Hubei province preserves more than 1,500 different strains of virus. Yeah, I think it might be uh, 1499 now, guys, not 1500. Uh, you, may, you may have dropped one back there. Accidentally, I'm sure. Now, I don't know if there's any connection here. All I know is that apparently the largest virus bank in Asia was located in the exact place where a viral pandemic originated. Could be a coincidence, I suppose. It could be. Or not. But I guess asking this question is racist. Can't ask it. Can't talk about it. Uh, it, it, it you know, it's, it's, even though there's a, the largest virus bank in Asia is located at the epicenter of this viral pandemic, it's still, of course, way more likely that the whole thing started with a, with a bowl of soup, of bat soup. Started there, you know. How did the bat get it? Who knows? Nobody knows. Okay, uh, moving on to emails. Remember, you can subscribe. Uh, I urge you to, to go subscribe today so you can submit questions to the mailbag. We've got, um, let's see how much time we have. Yeah, we've got one quick question from Kate, and then we're going to go to why I'm wrong, an email from somebody telling me why I'm wrong about, uh, about, in this case, about abortion. This is from Kate. says, my younger brother, 17, has a fun hobby of taking his coon hound hunting Friday nights with the dog's litter mates and their owners. My dad, stepmom, and I were talking about this the other night after he left. Come to find out, one of the other owners is a young girl his age. Well, naturally, the topic turned to my brother and his lack of dating habits. My dad made a comment about how he's 17 and it's okay for him to date. My stepmom suddenly snaps, well, what's the difference between him and his sister? Uh, The running joke in the family is that we daughters can't date until we're married. His defense seemed to be along the lines of, he trusts my brother not to be the kind of guy he's afraid of us daughters getting involved with. I understood what he meant, but his explanation was a bit fumbled, and my stepmom is still annoyed, even saying that she was genuinely upset about his stance. If you got, uh, never good when you get that from the wife. I'm genuinely upset. I'm really upset about this. Never good. Never good. Um, If you got through that and it made sense, could you possibly provide some arguments or bullet points on why my dad is right or possibly wrong? On a side note, my dad's position on the subject has never changed, and I feel like that's the reason why I didn't date until 21 and married my first boyfriend. 
who holds the same position when it comes to our daughter and son. Thanks for reading this saga, and I look forward to your advice. Kate, um, first of all, you know, I appreciate how you did the woman thing there and provided narr- narrative details that weren't at all necessary to the point. I'm not, it's not a criticism. I, just, I, I do enjoy it. That's, my wife does the same thing. All women do. If you want to tell a story, right, you, you start the story much further back in the timeline than you need to, and you work your way up the windy road to get to the thing you want to discuss. My wife will, will sometimes begin the story 19 or 20 years before the events she wants to describe. So she'll bump, bump into a friend at, at Kroger and, uh, the, you know, the grocery store, and she'll want to tell me about it, but she'll start with the friend's infancy narrative, and then she'll she'll go through, leading up through the years and decades, their time in school and everything, and, all, and then and eventually culminating in this fateful encounter uh, in aisle 12 of the grocery store. So here you told me about your brother who enjoys hunting with his coonhound and then took me on a windy, twisty trail before finally getting to the question of whether I think it makes sense for parents to let their sons date earlier than their daughters. Uh, you're right that that was a saga. Now, if this was a man asking this question, he would have just dove right into the question. That's it. One sentence, question, done. But you, you set the stage for me, and I appreciate that. And now I guess I'm sort of doing the same thing that you did. I'm doing the same thing I accuse you of doing. I've, I've started with a preamble. The difference is I start everything I say with a preamble, which always involves my opinions about things. And then I get to what I want to say. Women start with a prologue. So it's sort of narrative versus editorial. Okay. Uh, uh, do I think it makes sense to be a bit more protective of our daughters when it comes to dating? Well, yeah, I, I think it does. And, and for, for the reason that your, your, your uh, dad gives of, um, uh, you know, of, of we have to protect our daughters potentially from bad guys. And, and uh, that's something we have to do. I, I also think we want to protect our sons from certain girls. We can't lose sight of that. There are, there are bad dudes out there. There are also bad girls. And those girls can do a lot of psychological and emotional damage, sometimes worse, especially when you think about the false accusations and everything that are so common these days. But all the same, when it comes to the physical safety angle, uh, yes, I think there's reason to be more protective of our daughters. That said, while, while I believe that directionless dating is pointless and ultimately bad, that is dating that does not have as its intended end the contemplation of marriage, which doesn't mean, of course, as you know, that I'm saying that if you date someone, you must marry them. But the, the point is that if you date someone, you should at least be discerning marriage. And if you're not discerning marriage, if you've ruled the possibility of marriage out to begin with, there's really no point of dating because you're doing something that you know absolutely will end in heartbreak. There's no other possibility, and probably soon it will end that way. So you're not really practicing marriage or practicing having healthy relationships. You're practicing divorce. You're practicing having dysfunctional relationships. And that's a lot of what the dating scene is. So I I think that's the case. But at the same time, I also think it's not necessarily wise for parents to tell their 17-year-olds that they can't date which it sounds like that's what your daughter, your, um, your daughter, it sounds like that's what your dad did with his daughters, told them at, even at 17. I, I'm just, context clues, it seems like that's what you're saying. If that's the case, then um, I believe you have to give kids some kind of freedom and ability to make decisions before they become adults, because at 17, you're one year away from legal adulthood. And you want to, ease your kids into adulthood a little bit and, and, and give them some freedoms and, 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 and the ability to make choices, um, which doesn't mean you let your kids do whatever they want. It doesn't mean that you, 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 know, you, you have your kid dating at the age of 11. 
I think that there's probably some room in between that and giving your kid no freedom at all until they're adults. So I think that um, there's room in between there for, I think, a wiser and more prudent approach. You do have to worry about if you take the ultra strict stance with your kids and you say, oh, no dating. Uh, eventually they're going to be adults and they're going to be out of your control. And um, there's a, a good chance that they're going to run out and do everything you didn't want them to do in one repressed explosion because you were far too strict. Um, and I say that as someone who believes generally, you know, that that so-called, at least what, what, what our culture considers to be strict parenting often is, is the right approach, but it can go, you can go overboard with it. Uh, thank you for the question though, Kate. Finally, why I'm wrong. This is from Pat says, dear Matt, you're wrong about abortion. You say an embryo is life. So what? A virus is life. Should we not kill viruses? I know you'll say human life is more valuable than other kinds of life, but you have to defend why that would be the case. And anyway, the point is that the simple fact of a thing being life does not in and of itself mean much of anything. You must agree with this stance since you were cheering on capital punishment on Friday. Okay, Pat, first of all, I don't claim to be a biologist, um, but I think most biologists will tell you that viruses are not life. Actually, they're not alive because they lack some of the basic hallmarks of life. They're not self-sustaining. They don't grow. Uh, they can't replicate replicate without hijacking a living thing, an, or, an organism. Um, they can't do it on their own. So what are they is the question. And, and this is a live, uh, pun intended, debate among biologists and scientists. What is a virus exactly? How do you classify it? We like to classify things as people. It helps us sort of understand the world around us. Not everything can be classified. So what is a virus? Is, is it dead? Obviously not. Uh, dead means that it was living once and is, is no longer. Is a virus inanimate? Well, it doesn't seem so. Probably just doesn't seem like it would fit that qualification. So it seems that viruses are in some sort of gray area between alive and not. Kind of like biological robots or something. Your, your argument then is actually much weaker than it could have been. And so I'm going to improve your argument for you. And then I'll address the better version of your argument. What you should have said is that viruses are in a gray area between alive and not alive, proving that such gray areas can exist. And therefore it's possible, you would argue, that human embryos could occupy a gray area. They could be sort of in between. Um, and in which case, you know, why wouldn't it be okay to kill them? I, I think that argument would have been much stronger if you had offered it. As for that stronger argument, now as I argue against myself, um, it's true that there, there might be a gray area, but, but the organisms, or rather the entities, the things that occupy that gray area, are there by their nature. What I mean is, the gray area is not something that an organism passes through on its way to being alive. Viruses are always viruses. They aren't growing into living things. They aren't, they aren't becoming anything. And, uh, and, and that's one of the reasons why scientists would say they're not alive, because they lack that capacity. Um, if they were growing into a recognizable li living thing, then we would have, there'd be no ambiguity. We would say they're alive. Um, if, if virus was a stage of development for some organism, there would be no question that it is alive. So, you know, when it comes to us, we're alive. You're, you are alive, Pat. I'm sure you would agree. You currently are alive. You were once an embryo, just as you were once a toddler. 
These are stages of development for you that you passed through. So you must have been living the whole time. You were a life the whole time. This is, if, if I were to, as I've explained it many times, if I were to take you and go back through your timeline in reverse, if I, if I were to hit reverse, right, on the remote control of your life and follow you backwards, there would be an unbroken chain of you-ness connecting the you of today to the you that was in the womb. I mean, it's you the whole time, right? And therefore, you were living the whole time. As for human life being more valuable than other kinds of life, well, you actually agree with me on that, whether you pretend to or not, and I know that you agree with me. I am, yes, I'm going to read your mind and say that you absolutely agree with me on that, and I know you do, because if you saw someone step on an ant, or if you stepped on an ant yourself, as I'm sure you have, you do not react the same way as you would if you saw someone shoot another person. Or if you saw someone run over a child in their car, okay, you would react to the latter much, much stronger than you do react to the former. Uh, just like you're driving down the road, you see a dead deer, dead raccoon on the side of the road. I, I, I'm assuming you don't pull over and weep every time you see that. You don't even think about it. You just, you just keep along your way. Now, if you were driving along, you saw a dead person on the side of the road, that's going to be something that you remember. And you're going to react to that emotionally. Um, why is that? So I, I think what that establishes is that you do see a difference whether you, whether you acknowledge it or not. The question then is, why do you see the difference? Why is human life more valuable? You can approach that question from two perspectives. One, if you believe in God, in the Judeo-Christian God at least, you say that humans were created in the image of God. We are divine image bearers. And we have rational souls, and this gives us a certain value and dignity that other creatures lack. We were also given a dominion over, over, those, uh, over those other animals. Now, if you don't, so it's pretty simple from, a, from a, a God-fearing perspective. If you don't believe in God, even then, um, humans are, are still more valuable simply because we're the most evolved. We're at the top of the food chain. That makes us better than everything beneath us, all the organisms beneath us. We're at the top. We're superior. Dog eat dog, right? That's the Darwinian perspective. And so we're still more valuable in that case. Now, um, if, if the, unless you're going to approach this from a totally nihilistic perspective and say existence has no meaning, nothing has any meaning, nothing doesn't matter, uh, you know, it, 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 whether the entire earth exists or gets sucked into a black hole makes no difference whatsoever. If that's how you're approaching it, then, then sure, fine, I guess. From that perspective, there's no way to see anything wrong with abortion. But there's also, there's also no reason to keep living. There's no reason to care about anything. There's no reason to do anything. There's no reason to have any priorities whatsoever, right? Uh, given the fact that you've emailed me, I, I assume you do care about some things, which means you don't, you, you don't have that fully nihilistic perspective. But actually, all of this being said, the fact that we are superior to other organisms doesn't give us the right to treat those other organisms however we want. We should still treat them with respect and dignity. In fact, even the ant, I would say even with an ant. Now, if somebody steps on an ant, I'm not going to cry over, but over it, neither will you. But you shouldn't just on purpose for no reason step on an ant. I, I think if there's an infestation in your home, you can kill them for that reason. 
but you're walking down the sidewalk, you see an ant, uh, you know, it's one thing if you accident, but are, are you, you going to go out of your way just to step on the ant for no reason? I would say that's wrong. Shouldn't do that. I, I don't think it's a serious moral, uh, you know, moral evil, but it's, it's, a, it's a wrong thing to do because you are destroying life for no reason at all, just for entertainment, I guess, and that's wrong. But when we get to the higher animals, um, you know, puppies and, and things like that, well, I think we all would be opposed to dismembering puppies or crushing the skull of a, of, a, of a kitten. And it would indeed be illegal to do those things because our law treats the offspring of dogs and cats with greater respect than it treats human offspring. And, and I hope we can both agree that that is definitely not justified. But that's the way our law works. And it's inevitable as long as abortion is legal. It's inevitable that there's going to be a stage of human development where the people in that stage have less legal protection than dogs and cats and squirrels and, I mean, any other, and, 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 and sea turtles and really any other, um, almost any other life form you can think of. And that's... Um, Pretty horrific, I hope you would agree. We will leave it there. Thank you for the email. Uh, Pat, everybody have a great night. And remember, I will be at University of Maryland tonight uh, at 7 o'clock talking about the left's war on reality. Hope to see you there. Godspeed. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, and The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Walsh Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring, supervising producer Mathis Glover, supervising producer Robert Sterling, technical producer Austin Stevens, editor Danny D'Amico, audio mixer Robin Fenderson. The Matt Walsh Show is a Daily Wire production, copyright Daily Wire 2020. If you prefer facts over feelings, aren't offended by the brutal truth, and you can still laugh at the insanity filling our national news cycle, well, tune in to The Ben Shapiro Show. We'll get a whole lot of that and much more. See you there.